0: We are back. As mentioned at the top of the program, we're going to talk in this segment a bit about some developments that are sort of lurking in the background relating to the upcoming anticipated reversal of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court of the United States. It turns out there's some pharmacologic options that are not well known that we need to talk about. And anytime we want to talk about uh, pharmacologic issues, we need to go with our doctor of pharmacy, Howard McKinney because he is the man that knows about <laughs> clinical pharmacy. Welcome back to the program, Howard.
1: Dr. Doug, always a pleasure to talk with you.
0: We need to explain to our audience uh, that uh, it's surprisingly not well known that m- most abortions, at least certainly ones that are done in Europe and in India, are, are done using medications. There's no, no, there isn't necessarily a procedure per se. And this itself is a bit of a revelation, I think, that we can uh, sort of alert the public to. Correct. The, uh, the drugs are misoprostol, or Miso, better known to, uh, to listeners as Cytotec, and mifepristone, which they call miphi, Miso and miphi, also better known as RU486. Used in combination, this is an effective way of terminating a pregnancy.
1: Correct. And it works.
0: Apparently it works like gangbusters.
1: Uh, and I, even before getting into any of that, we're all certainly aware of all the tragic politicization of abortion. And it is no secret that there is great opposition to having any abortions in the United States. So that has certainly been a major influence to prevent people, potential patients, using these drugs from finding anything out about them. But in fact, the regimen you referred to was approved by the FDA in 2016 and approved by the World Health Organization prior to that. And the drugs people of a lot of countries' governments approved this regimen.
0: Not that people necessarily care, but we, we do want to point out that the, the mifepristone blocks what's called the pregnancy-enabling hormone, progesterone. And the second drug, the, the misoprostol or the cytotec, causes the uterus to contract, which can expel the fetus uh, if it's taken several hours later.
1: That is correct.
0: There's rarely a complication with this. That said, something only like 40% of abortions in America are chemically induced. i was surprised by that.
1: Again, I I think it would be a lot more commonly used if abortion was a procedure between a woman and her physician. But that's not the case. I'll be the first one to say I'm not an obstetrician. I basically did critical care and emergency department clinical pharmacy. So I saw a lot of women come through the emergency department who had uterine bleeding, who had ectopic pregnancies, who had various and sundry problems associated with a pregnancy, and was involved in induction of abortion in the emergency department, which we did with methotrexate, an anti-cancer drug. But it's fairly effective to stimulate a pharmacologic abortion. And that's what most of the obstetricians used in the emergency department. This whole issue of using it as an outpatient, and particularly in countries outside of the United States, that's why the World Health Organization got involved, this was enormously attractive for countries like India or various other populations where there's a lot of people you don't have near enough obstetric clinics to treat all these women, and you just got to have outpatient pills if possible to do things that you need to do. Yeah. And that's why there's that, that so much interest. Is it was just too easy, too straightforward, too easy to monitor.
0: Well, in something like half the states of the union, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they're lined up to to basically ban the procedure entirely in that state. So we're going to see a huge interest in in, uh, being able to obtain medicines through the mail, although there's some effort being made to curtail that, but that's going to be pretty tough to stop.
1: As we both know, and has been written about in the press extensively, actually, is laws like this prevent non-rich women from gaining access to obstetrics and abortion services. The wealthy will always be able to hop on their jet, fly to goodness and Home Square, get their treatment, and fly back home. So, it's a sad reality.
0: Well, speaking of costs, uh, I note in an Economist article that... Uh, The cost of drug-induced abortions is described as between $500 and $800, but buying the pills from a growing number of telemedicine startups gets it down more like around $200, makes it much more affordable.
1: I'm not well versed in the prices that are charged for this. I did some quick reading after we initially discussed this a couple of days ago, and the prices are all over the map, but there's a massive difference between what is charged to dispense these pills versus what they, quote-unquote, really cost. And with a bit more research, which I had not done, I can just tell you that if the World Health Organization approved this 2 drug regimen to induce medicinal abortions in lots, like tens of thousands of women all over the poorer areas of our planet, then they would not have approved it, even if it was 200 bucks a person, right? because that's like several times an annual income in a lot of countries.
0: Well, one thing that, that might help this whole procedure, last December, the FDA lifted a requirement that women collect the first of the two drugs from a clinic or medical office in person. They, they relaxed that in the wake of COVID. That's...
1: Certainly a help, and that has also been in the courts for fifteen years now, ten years, something like that, bouncing back and forth as to whether or not the Mifepristone could be dispensed like as an outpatient.
0: True that that has been a long-standing battle in courts. Yes. Yeah. We should refer people to the excellent article by Jessica Bruder that is in the current issue of The Atlantic. It goes through a lot of this stuff in some detail and is, uh, is well worth people um, seeking out.
1: And if they want to just go straight to the punchlines, I just plugged them in on good old Google and you can get the FDA medicinal abortion regimen, which is clearly spelled out day one, 200 milligrams of mifepristone. 24 to 48 hours after that, taking 800 micrograms of misoprostol buccally. We can mm-hmm. talk about that in a minute. There also have been a bunch of studies now that show that you can actually take the two together at the same time. One is taken orally, the the misoprostol, um, and the other, the misoprostol, is taken buccally because. If the mesoprostol gets in the stomach, the digestive enzymes in the stomach and small bowel tear the drug up before it can be absorbed and get out into the circulation, and through the blood is how it reaches the uterus.
0: Yeah, the article talked about a women are practiced with M&Ms uh, by putting them in their cheeks so that you're supposed to keep the drug in there to let it absorb that way.
1: Yes, indeed. <laughs> a rather brutal exercise, but... Basically, the, the example I use to people when I used to teach patients how to take things properly, as I said, it's like chewing tobacco. <laughs> and even, even if you don't chew tobacco, uh-huh. congratulations to you if you don't. <laughs> but even if you don't, you are well aware of this cud of tobacco between Ooh. the cheek and the teeth of the lower jaw. And what you're doing there is dissolving in saliva whatever drug you cheat. And then once it's in the saliva, it basically gets absorbed into the vascular supply on the lower side of the tongue. And that goes directly to the blood and avoids the gastrointestinal tract.
0: I have to ask at this point a pharmacologic question that I, that you would be the the go-to guy on. Uh, when I was in training, we used a lot of Cytotec. Um, it, it, it had come on the market because it was a great drug to counteract the effects of uh, aspirin-induced GI problems in people. Um, Correct. If 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 it if it gets absorbed by your stomach acid, how does it do any good if you swallow it?
1: That is. A good
0: question. I've stumped you. <laughs> I know you. I know you'll research that and have an answer next time we talk.
1: Next time we chat, yeah. All right. So we'll have a discussion of that.
0: Since we're talking about dosing up, there's something that we, we've done many times on this program, a sort of a public service announcement, is that you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, and another pharmacologic remedy for people who don't want to have a child is the morning after pill. We should talk a little bit about that. Back in the day, it, it was recommended that people could just take a couple of their birth control pills or get a hold of birth control pills, take one within, they say, five days, but hopefully as soon as possible and after a, a, an unprotected sex episode, and then 12 hours later, take another one. This this does depend somewhat on the type of pills, but basically that was a, a strategy that 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 was effective these days that was called the the method from named after some canadian physician these days the morning after pill is widely available and is is superior to the birth control pill it has fewer side effects and it's it's pretty damned available
1: the so-called plan b yes and it is levonorgestrel which is basically one of the two components that are usually in birth control pills And, yes, it it can be taken to uh, prevent or delay ovulation, and it works.
0: Works pretty well. I guess guess that the birth control pills should be reserved for someone who's camping or otherwise not uh, away from a pharmacy but does have some birth control pills. That method still will work. But people, I guess the estrogen makes women more nauseated and it's, it's just more prone to side effects.
1: Which is another cautionary tale of this. We've been talking about the fact that um, even the World Health Organization was looking at the um, two-drug regimen to induce a medicinal abortion for use by outpatient women in poor countries, basically. But this is not completely without problem. There are protocols, for instance, that give... R.H. immune globulin to R.H. negative women before they get these drug regimens to induce abortion in case that the fetus is R.H. positive, in which case that will induce massive destruction of the red cells and death of the mother, so-called erythroblastosis fetalis. Oh,
0: yes.
1: It is also true that with the bleeding that a woman can just quite simply, straightforward, bleed too much and have problems just from all the loss of that blood, then there's also a laundry list of issues, of problems that can occur with a woman who is having a medicinal abortion with effects in the uterus, effects in her gut and so almost all of these regiments kind of dance around it sometimes, but they really do advise a physician supervision.
0: Sure. We should point out, and a lot of the articles do point this out, that because there's uh, punitive provisions being set up in various states and other, other nations, less enlightened nations like Argentina, etc., that um, a woman should present to a medical facility saying she's having bleeding without getting into, like, why she's having bleeding. And it's, it's really difficult to tell the difference so that she can basically escape uh, censure that way. Correct. I'm looking, I'm looking at some data here, Howard. An Argentinian doctor is facing 10 years in prison for performing an abortion, even though it was legal. Apparently, after the woman's family filed a criminal complaint, she got charged with performing an abortion without consent. This is the kind of thing we're looking at in America. And this is scary.
1: Very. The people writing these laws are not only not physicians, they're specifically not obstetricians.
0: They're not science people either for the most part, I would add.
1: It's comforting as a patient to know that the, the practitioner who is giving you advice and supervising any of these procedures, you would hope for somebody who knows what they're doing and has done it enough for a long enough period of time that they know a lot of the issues that can occur. On both counts, this is not a completely innocent procedure that can just be walk into a pharmacy, buy some pills over the counter, take them, and not worry about it.
0: Right. This is not treating toenail fungus, no.
1: It's not that simple. But on the other hand, these laws, as has been painfully described, are, in a lot of cases, just ridiculous. They have nothing to do with basic physiology of female anatomy, the pharmacology and biology of pregnancy, and its termination.
0: Well, when when this does come down, we'll have to come back and, and, and take a look at this again and what this really means. I think the decision will come down sometime, they say, in the summer. There are a lot of people... The anticipation of this Dobbs decision are are saying that that's only the opening opening round. That if they can toss out Roe v. Wade, the the next thing would be to toss out Griswold versus Connecticut, which struck down a state ban on contraceptives and set up you know what was what what was a right to privacy, which some dispute really exists. There's also uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which required states to recognize same-sex marriage. And some are saying even Loving versus Virginia, which invalidated a state anti-miscegenation law. So, I mean, this we could really get re- incredibly reactionary here uh, if, if this is the first domino to fall. Correct. Neither, neither one of us are lawyers, so I don't, I don't know what the more to say about that. But, uh, you know, we had a guy on a couple years ago— um, Michael Trachtman, he had a book called The Supreme's Greatest Hits, the 34 Supreme Court Cases that Most Directly Affected Your Life. It was a great interview. We did it back in '06. He he might be a go-to guy we want to go reach out again to to say, well, what do you think?
1: I'm not an attorney. The laws on this are terrifyingly fascinating, you know? And the, the simple fact is a lot of people, you know, if they want to believe that, that's fine. But a lot of people think that abortion is murder, right? Uh, yeah. It's always struck me how many of those people are, however, in support of capital punishment.
0: I have to jump in, Howard. I know you, this is a subject you know something about, or we're, we're, we're kind of out of time on this, but those who claim this is a, a belief that it is murder often cite, they're usually Christian fundamentalists. And they tr- tr- allege that they you know, this comes from their beliefs from reading the Bible. But if one takes the time to go through the entire Bible, you are going to find yourself very hard-pressed to find any restrictions or condemnations of abortion in the Bible, and that's just a fact.
1: Correct. I would agree. Which, which is summed up in those two words, the Bible. Hang on. There's what 600 versions of it. <laughs> Something like that? I've, I even read today. It was just popping up in the news feed and stuff. The so-called Wicked Bible, and somebody uh-huh. in New Zealand found a copy of it. It was published in the, I believe, 1600s, and was basically about the same time that Tyndall and his group were essentially writing the version of the Bible for King James, the first of Scotland and the fourth of uh, England. The
0: English Bible, yeah. First first English version. Which,
1: what they think happened is kind of funny, is they think that a competitive group to Tyndall's group didn't like the fact that he had exclusivity over publishing these translations of the Bible. So they convinced a typesetter to leave the word not out <laughs> of the, the Ten Commandments.
0: Uh, yes, I'd heard, I'd heard this.
1: So it reads, thou shalt commit adultery, <laughs> and therefore became known as the Wicked Bible. I
0: right. see. In closing, the, this, you know, I just something else that popped into my mind. Um, remember back in 1992 when, when uh, Clinton was debating... Bush 41, and someone asked him about abortion, what, uh, what, what penalties there should be for the woman. And he, he was sort of taken aback and said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but there's going to have to be some. Afterwards, I think James Baker jumped in to say, well, what he meant to say was uh, the woman herself would also be a victim of abortion. But, you know, that was, that was really what he was thinking. We need to have penalties to this women, and by God, they're setting them up now.
1: What started out as, when we were going through our health science educations, I mean, this whole business of pregnancy and obstetrics and gynecology is complicated enough if you're doing it in the privacy of a medical clinic, emergency department, or hospital, right? And to layer all these other agendas onto it and these Byzantine laws and produce effects that people just politically or religiously want to happen just makes the whole thing just this complicated forest of misinformation and conflicting goals and unintended consequences.
0: Well, I I hope we put out some better information today. Hopefully so. Hopefully it'll help. Howard, I got several topics I want to ask you about, but they're going to have to wait for another day. I want to ask you about ketamine and PCP and those sorts of things being used to treat pain, but not today.
1: The real fun stuff.
0: Well, it will be, I think. So come again soon. Howard McKinney, always a pleasure. We'll bring you back
1: soon. Always a pleasure.
0: was Howard McKinney, a man whose doctor of pharmacy we are happy to put to good use whenever we can. All right, I think we're going to return to miscellaneous mode, the remainder of this show. I've got a couple of articles here from our favorite science magazine, New Scientist, that I want to mention. And one from our not-favorite science magazine, Scientific American. Scientific American, a couple years back, had a special issue on, quote, conspiracy theories, unquote. For the most part, it was not a very good special issue. Here's why. Here's one of the pieces, titled Message Control. A piece by a Brooke Borrell, described as journalist and author who frequently reports on biotechnology. Notes the piece. In 1999, Robert Shapiro, then the head of Monsanto, gave a stunning mea culpa at a Greenpeace conference in London. Monsanto's first genetically engineered crop had been on the market for only three years, but they were facing fierce public backlash. After a botched rollout marred by a lack of transparency, the company, Shapiro said, had responded with debate instead of dialogue. Our confidence in this technology has widely been seen, and understandably so, as condescension or indeed arrogance. Because we thought it was our job to persuade, too often we've forgotten to listen. Noted Brooke Borrell, the damage was already done. Fifteen years later, only 37% of the U.S. population thought that GE foods were safe to eat, compared with 88% of scientists, according to the Pew Research Center. Regulatory bodies in the U.S. fought for years over whether and how to label GE foods. In 2015, more than half of the European Union banned the crops entirely. You just stop right there and point out that how you frame an issue is something we have to grapple with every week on this program. If, for example, you ask someone, well, have you stopped beating your wife? You've already framed the discussion. Brooke Borrell has framed this discussion as an issue of just people who are ignorant and don't realize that GMOs are just wonderful things. Now, if 37% of the U.S. thinks that GE foods are safe, that's a low percentage, and the GE foods themselves probably are safe to eat. The problem with genetic engineering has nothing to do... With the final product and everything to do with the devastating effect these products have on biodiversity around the world. Lack of biodiversity is, make no mistake about it, going to be one of the signature problems humanity faces for the remainder of this century and onwards. As we keep destroying vast swaths of land that have the basic genetic material that we're going to need in the future, we're losing our future. So the remainder of the article has a lot of gobbledygook in there about the technical aspects of genetic engineering and continues to, I think, pretty much miss the boat. Although I do like the way she closed it, which is as follows. Whether the emergence of these efforts, GE and otherwise, will reduce fear and skepticism depends on how responsive the people listening to the engagement are to those concerns. Quoting Jennifer Kuzma, co-director of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University. In other words, says the author, researchers must be willing not only to hear the public's confusion and pushback, but also to adapt, even if that means shelving a technology they think could change the world. Now, to be sure, genetic engineering has done some wonderful things. When you buy actual human insulin, identical to that made in the human pancreas that was in fact made by yeasts, thanks to genetic engineering, that is a huge triumph. When you're buying corn, however, that has Roundup resistance bred into its genome so they can plant corn and then spray the fields again and again with Roundup just to kill the weeds but not the corn, well, you've, you've taken a wrong turn. And that's all I'm going to say today. One of the pieces from new scientists I've been sitting on, or I don't know whether we mentioned this back in 08, Mr. McMillan, but I don't think we did. It was sort of a thought piece titled, How We Kicked Our Addiction to Growth. The article was described as being based on a discussion with Herman Daly and uh, looked forward in the future from its position in 2008 to where we might be 10 years later, which would be 2018 or 2020. Take your pick. In this fanciful society of the future, the article notes, scientists set the rules. They work out what levels of consumption and emission are sustainable, and if they're not sure, they work out a cautious estimate. Then it's up to the economists to work out how to achieve those limits and how to encourage innovations so we extract as much as possible from every scrap of natural resource we use. To which I stop right there and say, wait, we're depending on economists? We are in trouble. Peace notes they are using two main mechanisms. The first is cap and trade, under which companies can buy and sell emissions permits. This is working well for reducing carbon emissions, for example. I've always been puzzled by this one. The government economists arbitrarily decide how much they're going to let you pollute and they turn those certificates loose to get traded. So, I don't know. The second according to the article is to change what we tax. We are abolishing income tax, a popular decision, to encourage people to add as much value as possible to the resources they work with. Instead, we're taxing resources at the point at which they're removed from the biosphere. Oil as it's pumped from the ground, or fish as they're scooped from the sea. You know, I like where he's kind of going with that, but in this fantasy world, who... Does this? Who actually accomplishes this? A world government? I don't know. The end of the article notes: ten years down the line, the sacrifices we have made have been less onerous than we feared they might be. Well, the truth of the matter is, we are ten years in the future and then some past this article, and um, it's true the sacrifices we made have been less onerous because we didn't make them in the first place. Carbon tax is such a good idea. Taxing fish as you scoop from the sea—that's also a pretty good idea. But are we going to see these implemented? I doubt it. Final piece, April 16th article from this year from New Scientist points out a bold plan which would do immense good to help planet Earth. The bold plan was to set aside 30% of global land and sea for nature and do it by the end of the decade. The article refers to the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD that was set up following the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio, and notes that by 2020, 15% 15% of land and 7% of the sea was protected, to which I would only add, uh, really, along with a maybe. Flushed with this sort of success notes the article, the CBD declared the goal partially achieved. The piece notes that resistance to this planet is likely to come from low-income countries where most of the planet's remaining biodiversity resides. The beef of such countries is that high-income nations have already wrecked their own biodiversity in pursuit of economic growth, and now want them to resist doing the same. Countries like Brazil are saying, okay, you want me to protect the Amazon? What's in it for me? This kind of strikes me as a guy looking down at someone on a ventilator who's dying of lung disease after his 120-pack year history of smoking, and saying, well, I enjoy smoking. Why should I quit? Maybe that isn't the best Analogy in the world, but the idea that numbskulls in Brazil would have to ask, What's in it for me as they're destroying the Amazon rainforest is um, sad. Anyway, this article points out how important uh, preserving biodiversity is. And I have no argument to that, but the idea that, they're gonna, that we're going to actually do this looks about as fanciful as that, uh, that idea back in 2008 that scientists and economists were going to save the world. That about does it. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Thanks again to Howard McKinney. Always a
1: fountain of information. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then.